It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am honored to have Linda Larson-Slitz with us today. Welcome, Linda. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be a part of this. Thanks for the invite. Yes, I'm thrilled to have you. Let me let me tell the listeners just a little bit about you. Linda has been a counselor, speaker, author, and life coach for over 30 years. Her journey to healing and sobriety for the trauma that she had been through came in 1976 after coming to understand God's purpose for her life after battling mental illness, alcohol, and drugs. She is 25 years sober and is passionate about helping others overcome their barriers to discovering God's purpose and making a living doing it. Linda is the author of two books where she shares her recovery story of substance abuse, ADHD, and other mental illnesses. Her most recent book is a 12-step Bible-based meditation book to help others in their recovery. In 2001, Linda co-founded a nonprofit organization to help homeless veterans and others with mental health and substance abuse disorders. And there's a little bit more there, but I don't want to give the rest of it away. How's that? (laughs) That sounds great. (laughs) Well, you have been a busy lady. Indeed, indeed. Too busy at times. Well, that's that's all of our stories, I think, at at times. So tell me something um, that wasn't included on the bio. Well, I have been doing all kinds of other things. I've been online as a coach now for the last uh, six years. I'm excited about that. I've got a husband and and uh, five kids and nine grandchildren, great nine grandchildren, three great grandchildren. And oh, life is, yeah, it is good. There's lots of uh, exciting things there. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be having the opportunity to move forward. I now also just started on Teladoc. So I'm available through that online service in Wisconsin, at least. So if people oh, okay. need to have a counselor that's paid through insurance, I'm available to do that as well. So oh, that's great. Do you like um, doing therapy online? Does that work well for you? I absolutely love it. My clients love it as well because it's so convenient. They can do it either by phone or on video. And now I'm also kicking off a a 12-week course for people who are are needing help with mental health and substance abuse issues or just trying to find their purpose in life. So the online thing, I absolutely love it. And I think it's a great option for people who, especially during this pandemic, Yeah, it really has opened the world up a lot. We've become a lot more aware of possibilities of all of this online stuff. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have a lot to cover. You have lots of topics that we can talk about, and I think we'll just dive right in here. Talk to me a little bit about some of the mental illness struggles you've had. Well, I did not know that I had a mental illness. I knew something wasn't right with me. Uh, I I mean, was hyper growing up, always have been very hyper. But 
you know, I did okay. I was popular and I coped really well. I was creative. I excelled in things like art and music and sports, but I did not do well with academics. I did Mm -hmm. not know till I was 28 years old that it was attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I also didn't know that I clearly had a chemical imbalance with depression. And now, I mean, now when I think back of, I hear a song from my childhood and I start crying even today. I was a very emotional child. Didn't have suicidal tendencies or anything like that until I started using drugs. Between the ADD and then I also was sexually assaulted when I was younger. That's a whole nother story. But that um, and a lot of the trauma that I went through and choices that I made led me to Uh, become very depressed and suicidal. And then many years later, when I was finally diagnosed with ADHD, um, I eventually was also diagnosed with hypomania type two bipolar disorder, which is, I, I, I give the psychiatrist credit because it looks very much like, um, ADHD because I don't have the massive depression. I just Mm -hmm. have, uh, my norm is above average. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm normally more energetic than people just as a rule. But when I get in a manic phase, then I don't sleep and I make lots of crazy decisions, very impulsive, chasing every shiny object out there and, and getting myself into way too many things, spending too much money. But that was before I was on medication and and, uh, learned how to eat healthy and do some things different that is better manage my mental health. So the hyper hypomania, I've never heard that in relationship to bipolar. Is that just um, where does bipolar one, bipolar two fit in there? Yeah, this is a bipolar two hypomania type two bipolar. So it's a type two. It, It comes into a different segment. It doesn't have the severe mood swings that others do. I've never real been real low psychotic. lows. Yeah. yeah. No, nope, none of okay. that. Well, um, you just gave me a, a lot of information there back up a little bit to, um, you were sexually assaulted when you were younger. Yes. Uh, you know, on a couple of different <laughs> situations, um, some that I, I don't want to disclose because I just never have who that's all about. But sure. Um, the one that I will share was getting drunk when I was a teenager and went on a kind of a blind date with somebody I hardly knew and ended up getting raped that night, which I did not, I didn't really talk. It was the seventies and mm-hmm. the whole mentality back in those days was sex, drugs and rock and roll and everybody does it. And if you get drunk, then it's kind of your own fault, your fault um, right. especially if you're flirtatious, which I really was when I would get drunk. <laughs> I, I was a major flirt. So um, it was like, well, you asked for it. You know, what do you expect? But I literally was too drunk to fight anybody off at that point. So, right. um, yeah, that was pretty traumatic. That's very traumatic. Do you feel like um, the alcohol was a way of you trying to manage your ADHD unconsciously or was it, were there other triggers to that? Yeah, no. uh, Well, the alcohol is just what we do in Wisconsin. I mean, that is just, we are like 
one of the the top states in the nation of of overindulgence of alcohol. I mean, we drink. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. You know, you drink with everything. Our biggest fundraisers at our churches in my hometown is is um you know sell the beer tent. I mean, it's just the it's just what we do. But not everybody has the problem that I have with it. Um, but no, I think it. I really did not even drink until I got out of high school, and started drinking more. Well, I drank a little bit in high school, um, and it was right when I was graduating that that other event happened. And then, um, then I got pregnant. Um, I did get married. It wasn't part of the rapes, but uh, unfortunately, it was in the 70s and abortion was legal. And my doctor said, oh, well, you can expel this mass of tissue. And I didn't really give Mm. two thoughts about it. And I don't know why I didn't give two thoughts about it, but I ended up having a couple of abortions because um, it just, at, the first one wasn't convenient. I started using marijuana and other drugs shortly after that. And then the second time I got pregnant, I was quite, you know, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a deformed baby and I shouldn't bring him into the world and my life is too crazy. And by then I was spiraling down with the alcohol and the drugs and just crazy lifestyle. And so that's really what pushed me um, you know, it was, then I went through a divorce and just carousing around. It was the shame and the guilt and all of that, that, you know, it was partying that got me started on the alcohol. It was the abuse and the trauma that kept me on the alcohol and the drugs. And then I couldn't quit when yeah. I decided I was done um, or I wanted to quit. I tried to quit and I couldn't quit. And that's what, uh, what so drugs excited. were you on? You know, it was, it was not much, uh, marijuana was my main thing, but then uh, white cross, they called it back in those days. It was Ritalin actually is what it was. It's what they oh. treat people with ADHD. So that's why that particular drug made me feel more normal because that literally is the chemical missing in my brain that I need to be normal was that mm-hmm. particular medication. So when years later, when I was diagnosed, the doctor said, Oh yeah, that's why you like that one. Um, so that was it. I mean, I tried acid a couple of times, but I did not get into the hard drugs, heroin. We didn't have methamphetamine back in those days. I'd mm-hmm. never even heard of it. It was more of the, um, cocaine and heroin was out there, but not in my community. It was mainly pot and, and uh, White Cross were the babies. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So at what point did you, um, did you know that your drinking and drugs were a problem? What was the tipping point? Well, you know, th- there were several tipping points. Every time I would wake up to being somewhere that I didn't know who, where I was, who I was with, or how I got there. Those were were big red flags for me. And it happened, you know, it happened throughout. I mean, from the practically from the time I started drinking, I was having blackouts and those blackouts were very frightening. I woke up once in uh, puking out the side of my car, which I had driven going 105 miles an hour. 
I remember watching that. I was mad because some cop had flirted with me in a bar and I thought that was way inappropriate. And so I'm driving home and I was mad. And, and then I wake up, uh, you know, I got sick and I'm, I just can't even believe the places I woke up and the people. And I'm like, who are you? What am I doing here? How did I get here? Ugly guys and just bad situations. So I knew it was a problem um, when those kinds of things started happening. And then the breakups and I, you know, um, had a couple of real serious relationships and I messed those up and, and um yeah, all of those things caused me to finally realize this has got to stop. It's just got to stop. So once you realized it was a problem, what kind of help did you receive? Did you go to a rehab or did you did you do sobriety on your own? How did you? Yeah, here, here's the, the amazingly cool thing. And I, I always cry when I tell the story. Um, <laughs> always. I've never not. I was a waitress at a restaurant and a 16 year old girl worked that I worked with. She had just started there. She'd been there longer than I am. So she kind of helped me out. And I was telling her this story of how messed up my life was. And she said, Linda, God's got a better plan for you. He loves you and you don't have to do these things and live this way. He really can make an amazing life for you. And I, I didn't, you know, I always believed in God. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I never really had him, you know, in a personal way in my life. And so she kind of introduced me to a different concept of that. And she gave me a Bible that was really easy to read besides the King James, which I couldn't make heads or tails out of the these and the thous. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was helpful. And I took that Bible, I moved back in with my parents after I was going through my divorce, and I'd gone through a breakup, and I'd done a bunch of other stuff. And the night that I just had had enough, I got on my knees, and I said, God, if you're real, prove it to me. Um, Show me, make me sick at the thought of alcohol and drugs. And if you don't, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. Mm. So I kind of put God to the test. I read uh, Isaiah 41.10, which is a story of David and Bathsheba, where he says um, of, of something we sang in church every Sunday my whole entire life. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. I knew that. I never knew it was from the Bible in all those years growing up in the Lutheran church, because it doesn't really say that where you sing it. But that was the story of David having an affair with the neighbor lady and then having her husband put to death. Well, that was, you know, worse than what I had done. Or I guess it depends on how you looked at it. But I it gave me hope because God called David a man after his own heart. And I thought if he can love David and make something useful out of his life, maybe he can help me. So I asked him uh, to make me sick. And I woke up the next day. I'm telling you, I have never been the same since. I um, I went to our wow. band practice. I was singing in a bar band. I said, God, if you don't want me doing this, you know, and going to bars and drinking and partying, then, uh, you know, give me a sign and I'll quit doing this. And I picked up the microphone and I got a shock. 
And I'm like, God, if that's you giving me a sign, give me another sign. And the light bulb above the drummer exploded. And I'm like, okay, God, I got you. And I went to the, I still went the next night to sing at this bar band. And I walked in, I smelled the alcohol and the smoke. And I just went and threw up and said, that's it. I'm done. I packed up and moved to Arizona. And I've been in the ministry ever since. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is crazy. And so that was what year? 1976. So you've been sober since 1976. I have been clean since 1976. I quit using alcohol and drugs. And then 10 years later, I went to Arizona, lived there for five years, came back to Wisconsin, married again, pregnant, went through another divorce. um, And Shortly after that, started drinking again, not because I needed alcohol or I was struggling. I was going to a church where people didn't have a problem with alcohol. And in Arizona, everybody did. But in Wisconsin, nobody does. Or a lot of people did not feel drinking was a bad thing. Well, Jesus turned water into wine. And that gave me permission to pick up that first glass of wine. Didn't do beer. Because Jesus turned right. water into wine. <laughs> so right. I started with a glass of wine. I should have had a clue the first night I finished the bottle. And I proceeded to drink for the next 10 years. So now it's been 25 years since I sobered up again for the second time. But I drank for 10 years and it progressively got worse as yeah. time went on. And so did you feel like what was the tipping point the second time to um, to to get sober? Yeah, it was um, waking up. I I was taking a class. I had gone back to school to get my degree in counseling, and I was taking a course, um, the hidden disease, it was called, the hidden disease of alcoholism. And I was like my third day into the class. It was just a week-long class. And I went out with some friends, we were in a softball tournament. We won the tournament. I just got trash drinking champagne. And then I drove home. I drove home just completely in a blackout and um, was so porcelain queen the next day, puking in the toilet, had to call into my, my um, and you had to be there to get the cl- the credits. But I had such a revelation at that point Um, that I called the professor and said, I'm, you know, this is crazy, but I got drunk last night and I realized I have a problem with this. So that was it. And then a a couple of months later, I decided to quit drinking. Um, I quit drinking in March of 76. And then I went on a vacation and I big last Bruja down in Florida. And I got drunk and called a client when I was drunk. Mm. That was it. That was the last thing because he filed a complaint against me for calling him when I was drunk. So I was way out of line and I didn't want, I, that was it. So I've been sober ever since. Wow. Well, that's um, admirable that you have been sober that long. I know that that is, um, that is a huge accomplishment. So congratulations to that. So one day at a time. time. (laughs) So um, the uh, alcohol and drugs kind of were a part of a part of your um, kind of demise and figuring out that you had a problem. 
um, can I ask, did the abortions affect you emotionally? Um, how did that, you kind of, you kind of hinted at that. So that's why I'm asking. Yeah. So at that point it had not sunk in. I didn't even realize that was an issue. Um, it happened, blah, blah, blah. I went through it. Honest, honestly, I did not, I did not connect the dots until when was it? 1980. It was after I'd had my daughter was in the 80s when I got a brochure at um, at church in Sunday school. They were teaching. It was around January 22nd, the Roe versus Wade thing. And they had brought these pictures that were put out by the Keith Green ministry that had pictures of aborted babies. Oh, mm. my gosh. I was a wreck. I was just a wreck when I had seen what I had done. And mm. I was so, I was devastated. I was just a wreck. And again, became extremely depressed and, and shameful and just was on a roller coaster. And at that point, um, fortunately, there were a lot of pro-life people in my community and they really rallied around me and helped me to get through that. Um, I pretty much immediately started speaking about it and telling other people, this is not a good ch choice. This isn't a good option because, you know, I can't tell other people what to do. But what I feel about the whole thing is that people need to have an informed choice about what they're doing. And okay. I don't feel I had an informed choice describing what was growing inside me as a mass of tissue is not an informed choice. Yeah. Um, having some, having the mother listen to the heartbeat of that child, that is an informed choice. Mm -hmm. And when I finally came to terms with that, I went back to the doctor that had facilitated um, the second abortion, I, I went to the other one as well. But the one who facilitated the second abortion, I went to him because he was in my community. And I said, Why did you do this? Why didn't you have me hear the heartbeat? This, you know, I, I'm, I'm a wreck. You know, this is not who I am. This is, I would have never ever done that had I, because I'd had a child now, and I'd heard the heartbeat. Right. You know, so I realized what I had done and he just, he felt horrible and his practice at that, from that moment on changed and he never, he always would have the woman hear the heartbeat. That's just part was, became part of his practice as a OBGYN. And we actually at that time went around and spoke in schools about uh, the consequences of, of teenage sexuality and mm. what happens and that you really need to make a decision about abortion before you have sex, because yeah. after you have sex is too late because the emotions are involved. You need to decide what is that. And as I counseled men and women over the years, it's what do you believe this is? Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you believe this is your child, are you comfortable with 
what you'll be doing with that. So that was my approach to it. And to be honest, I haven't spoken on this topic in, you know, many, many years in part because I was concerned about how it might affect my my kids and my grandkids and that sort of thing. But now, for whatever reason, God has led me to open up about this in recent months. And, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, for whatever purpose, if it saves um, a life or someone from, I actually did my master's thesis on post-abortion stress and the correlation oh, really? to a, adult children of alcoholics and, and that whole connectedness between um, you know, abuse or a, a, about the whole addiction thing. And what I found in my studies was that about 78% of couples that go through this decision end up breaking up, which was, you know, there's a clue that's not a good choice if you don't think you can afford it. Um, the other thing was the incredibly high percentage of uh, women that commit suicide as a result or attempt suicide as a result of having had an abortion. The the statistics are much higher for those that had had abortions as opposed to those that hadn't when they did the studies. Interesting. And what year did you do that? Did you do that paper? Yeah, that was way back in um, 89. Okay. Okay. So, So the conversation was not in full steam yet. Um, you know, it was pretty hefty at that point too, I think, but now there's probably a lot more. Although, um, because I haven't been doing a whole lot in that realm, because I've been focusing more on the substance abuse issues in recent years and dealing with the women that are part of that and why they have done that, which there's a lot of them and uh, that, that didn't realize that's why they were using alcohol and drugs was because they weren't dealing with the abortion issues. Um, But I think, you know, there's a lot more rationalization that goes on now with women's rights. I mean, that's always been there, but it seems even more so now to some degree. And because there is such a negative, oh, I hate to even go here, but the, the negativity of the way that a lot of pro-life people deal with others who yes. are going through these struggles or have been there, it causes all kinds of problems. For example, right, when I, creating uh, shame around, around it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And um, for example, I was asked to speak and I was the keynote speaker at a, um, a board, a, you know, a pro-life gathering on this and, Um, I was sitting in the front row. A woman came and sat next to me. She didn't know who I was. And she said, well, this will be interesting to hear the speaker because I don't know who in the world would ever do such a thing. And I'm like, and you're looking at her. And so it's that negativity, that guilt, that shame, that looking down that so many women don't reach out for help because they don't want that shame and judgment And the other thing is that it's really easy to say, how dare you go have an abortion? And what I say to to pro-life folks and Christians is, how dare you not open your home to a pregnant woman who has no doesn't feel she has any other options? You know, if we're going to be that easy to judge, to tell someone they shouldn't do something because, 
you know, it's wrong, then we need to offer other options. Right. And that's why, you know, I was involved in, in the help opening homeless programs for people. So they had at least got that issue off the table. They at right. least didn't have to worry about being pregnant and homeless and I, taking I'm in. A big, a, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm a big believer that if you're going to be pro-life, then you're pro-life from conception through to the grave. And yes. that includes um, unwed mothers, that includes pregnant mothers, that includes veterans, that includes um, incarcerated, previously incarcerated immigrants. I mean, if you're going to be Absolutely. pro-life, you're pro-life. Absolutely. So I get a, a sneeze. Oh. Bless you. Oh. Oh. I never sneeze once. <laughs> Very good. Okay. I'm going to do a thorough job. So um, take me real quick to, um, because I have been here too, and I'm just wondering your perspective, uh, suicidality, when you feel like you're at that point where you, you just feel no reason to live, what was your, what was going on in your mind during those seasons? Um. You know, I've, I've had it as I had it a second time after I sobered up after I met my husband um, and we were having a terrible time that we share quite often. He had um, gotten involved with with another woman and it was devastating. I was going to hang myself in the garage. So what goes through my mind or what did is um, I just always heard that that voice that said, I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, I've got a plan for you. And what I guess what went through my mind is that I don't have a, you know, I'm such a horrible person. That's what I guess it boiled down to. Mm. I'm, I'm so unworthy. I'm, I've done so many horrible things. People hate me. They're going to think I'm awful. It was all that shame. That's what my big deal was, was shame and guilt that I couldn't get past. Um, the second time, which was after I'd sobered up um, in 70s, this was in, seven, in 97, that was more about you hurt me and I don't want to go through this again. I don't want to hurt. Okay. I don't want to feel rejected. I don't want this pain. I don't want to go through another divorce, you know, and, and um, go through all of that. But I guess that too is shame of not yeah. being good enough yeah. and screwing up. And, you know, what did this time, what did I do? Was this really my fault? Um, so those were my things, but thank God that he's always been there saying what Jill Johnston said to me, I've got a plan for you. And it's a good plan for future and a hope and not for calamity. And that always stuck with me. So if there's any listeners out there, if you don't remember anything from this podcast, remember that God has a plan for you and it's a good plan for a future and a hope. You know, um, my psychiatrist said um, that there are lies at the bottom of suicide that say um, things will always be this way. They will never change. I will always feel this way. And when we get stuck in those absolutes and not realizing that there's any hope, it's it's complete darkness. Yes. And it just absolutely, absolutely enslaves you. Yeah, it it really does. And you know, I called my ministry the faucet of hope. I think we're all faucets 
of, of God's love and hope for me, what I've realized over 30 years of counseling is help, opportunity, praise, and encouragement. That's what people need to get out of the pits of despair or out of substance abuse or out of shame and guilt or out of the loss of a job or anything. We need help. We need opportunity. We need praise and encouragement. And, you know, that's what you're giving me today. You're giving me the opportunity to share my story so that somebody else can get the hope that they need. And I appreciate that very much, Jill. Thank you. Mm, Well, thank you. So talk to me a little bit about your work with homeless veterans. How did that get started? In 1996, I met my husband at um, Alcoholics Anonymous. We were both sitting there and we uh, eventually got married in 1998. And in 99, his health had deteriorated to such a point. He's got Crohn's disease. He has had 550 kidney stones. And oh my goodness. He, yeah, he just could not work a regular normal job anymore. And we, he had gone through treatments. We were now going to meetings and we realized there's a lot of people that are not, they don't have any place to go when they get out of treatment. They don't have any place to go when they get out of jail or or prison or if they lose their jobs. So we decided to start Sober House, a, a group home. So we started one group home in 2001. And my colleague, the veterans representative at the job center, he was working with a lot of these vets that were coming in, the homeless vets. And I really didn't know that much about homeless veterans at that point. And I'm like, this is not right that we've got homeless veterans on the mm-hmm. street that are not getting their needs met. So we he he worked with us. We started a nonprofit organization to target homeless veterans. And it went from the four bed home that we had to eventually 46 beds. And then we grew into starting businesses to teach them how to uh, do things to get their reputations back and their self-esteem and their sense of purpose. And we had five businesses that one year generated over $300,000 actually, and, Mm -hmm. and launched at least two veterans, three veterans that I can think of, four veterans now off the top. I really haven't counted, but I'm going to go back and count. Four vets had launched their own businesses out of that ministry that we had. Um, Tell us about the hot dog stand. The hot dog stand. Yeah. Troy Johnson, what an amazing guy. Vietnam veteran injured in Vietnam and um, ended up going to prison because of drugs got out of prison with this vision to have a a hot dog stand, came to our facility to Randland Homes. He um, was there for a period of time. We transitioned him, got a a job at the the veterans organization here. And he, we got a, a hot dog stand for the company. He operated the hot dog stand. And then when he got on his feet, he bought the hot dog stand and started the hot diggity dog stand and was the first African-American business in the city of Wausau, Wisconsin. Wow. Yeah. That is so cool. cool. Pretty cool. Yep. 
pretty well, cool. I love the I love the pairing of not just housing, but also working towards independence and um, you know, micro businesses and and that kind of thing. I think that's really cool. What other kind of businesses were started? We did a lawn care. Uh, that started in the fall where somebody said, Hey, you got any guys that'll break the lawn? So we sent them over. We didn't charge anything. Uh, we had a suggested $10 an hour donation and they would give to the company and they would tip the guys. And boy, that took off because the guys could earn some money because we weren't in a position to, um, this was a training program. It was an education and training program. We weren't in a position to start corporate businesses at that point. So that ended up growing into, hey, can anybody do uh, snow removal? And by by the end of our second year, we had 90 clients that the guys were running around. Oh, my um, goodness. Doing that. Well, one of the guys, one of the vets, he did small engine repair. So as we're going around doing lawn care and snow removal, we have that uh, the residents or the people are are um, struggling with not having anybody to fix their their machines, uh, their lawnmowers and snowblowers. So one of our vets started doing that business. So he was doing lawn care or doing um, small engine repair. And then we had we had the stores. That was our biggest money maker. We had a thrift store that we started that just went crazy. It got, we got so many donations that we ended up getting a warehouse to just house some of the bigger things. And that went crazy. So we ended up with two facilities of 5,000 square foot and then a 10,000 square foot that was completely packed with things that um, we ended up not having enough residents <laughs> to run all the businesses. Um, what was the other one? And then the hot dog stand. And then we did the gallery of hope, which was mm -hmm. a, we had a lot of creative people and I teach artwork and, and painting and they had learned how to fix furniture and how to do um, all kinds of really cool, creative stuff, making little uh, praying soldiers, wooden praying soldiers. So we started a gallery of hope where people could sell the artwork and the creative things that they had made. And uh, that was another one of the vets. Actually, I encouraged him to actually start selling his, his artwork. And he ended up doing full time and making a living off of the artwork that he had drawn. That's incredible. I love that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. One of Drilling. He still is running a lawn care snow removal business. He's been doing that now since um, 2000. And I think he left in 2010 and has been running a successful business now for the last 11 years. That's really gratifying to know that your work that starts with just um, providing shelter can lead to sustainability. Yes, absolutely. So Linda, one last question. What do you most want people to know about you? Um, I think what I want them most to know about me, that I am a plant. I am planted here on this earth um, to be a faucet of hope. God has gifted me with the ability to help people discover their purpose. Uh, 
and to encourage and empower them to figure out what that means and then how to plug them into doing it so that they can get paid to do what they love to do. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm thrilled. For example, um, Laura Slawicki is one of my people that, um, and she just shared her abortion story um, last month on a podcast with me. She is someone that I met about five years ago who was struggling with alcohol, drugs, mental illness. We got to talking. She also had had two abortions and did not feel good about it, but did not realize how much it had impacted her. Here we are five years later. She just went through my 12-week course, has now been sober for um, since January, totally sober, um, is quitting smoking. She hasn't done drugs in uh, over a year. I think it's been over a year. She's now got just had a baby not too long ago. She's in school, third semester, getting her degree in alcohol and drug counseling. And she's going to co-facilitate my next 12-week course that I'm going to be able to pay her now to start um, paying it forward. That's what it's Mm. about, giving her the help to get sober and clean, to give her the opportunity to now pay it forward and to give her the praise and encouragement to keep moving forward, not give up. Even if she has a slip, um, it's not too late. We, none of us are perfect. All fall short of the glory of God. We've all like sheep. So just because we screw up once in a while does not mean that God can't use us or won't use us because he will. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's what I want them to know. If I, I, I can be a faucet of hope if they need one. That's awesome. So how do people um, get a hold of you or follow you or find out more about you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the best way is probably to go to my webpage, lindalarsonschlitz.com. They can hook up with me there right up on the front of the page. I would love it if they would um, sign up for just a, a, a chat. We can talk about what I might be able to do to help them. They can also at the bottom of that page, they can sign up for one of my um, a 30-day sample of my my. Um, book, my meditation book, Speak to Me, God, I'm Listening. Uh, Like you said, it's 365 daily meditations for those who want to hear God answer life's toughest questions. And I think what's especially valuable about that, if you do that, you'll get the the little workbook I've got. It's the seven steps to hearing God speak and share your purpose. You get that if you sign up to get those 30 days. But that really helps people to understand how I came to that process of writing the book where I got a problem, God, here's my problem. What do you have in your word to say? I write that down. Then, oh, gosh, help me, God, put this into action. Tell me what you want me to do. And then I prayed and then I listened and God spoke to me in the way that he speaks to me. And I wrote it down and I put it in my book and then Um, You got to answer once God speaks where he says, uh, don't be anxious about anything. Mm -hmm. We have to listen. Then I shouldn't be anxious about anything. (laughs) Easier said than done. But 
Um, I, I share that process in that download, and then they'll get that book in their email every day. Um, and, and they'll get emails on what else I have to offer. And my uh, course is coming up soon. I'm also on Facebook. They can find me on Facebook at Linda Larson Schlitz. Uh, dot org. And then I'm also in on um, all the other social media. I've got videos on YouTube as well. But Linda Larson Schlitz on most of the platforms. Great. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing your story and uh, just being a part of the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. God bless. You too. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email Jill at JillRiley.org.